and welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, John Cribbs. This is a podcast associated with the website, thepinksmoke.com. And today we've got fan favorite, <laughs> Mr. John Arminio joining us once again. How you doing today, sir? Uh, you flatter me, Mr. Cribbs. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, and honor to be back. Always a pleasure to have you. And you have brought a special guest on today's episode. I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce him. Yeah, uh, it's my great privilege to introduce uh, my father, uh, Tom Arminio. I, we uh, needed some expertise for this little double feature. Dad, you know, graduated from the, uh, the Naval Academy in 1977, um, spent uh, 24 years in the Navy, flew the P-3 Orion, uh, which is a anti-sub uh, warfare uh, for prop plane uh, during the Cold developed during the Cold War. Um, he served at the Pentagon, was a CO of a squadron in Maine, uh, VP-10, taught at the Naval War College, the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and yeah, and retired uh, in 2001. I retired right before 9-11, so yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, John. John, my son, John, for, for asking me, and thank you, John Cribbs, for inviting me. It's really, really great. When John asked me to be on it, there was absolutely no hesitation. I said, oh, absolutely. That'll be, that'll be a blast. And I think our uh, family movie nights uh, was another impetus for me to join in the conversation. So this yeah, is great. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, tell me about these family movie nights, because I've, I've heard John talk about them. I've seen him mention it before, and I'm fascinated. I want to know what it's all about. Well, I have to give a shout out to my uh, very smart uh, wife, very perceptive, very, very insightful partner in, in life, John's mother, Jan. It was her idea. So uh, we, at, when the pandemic hit, she came up with the idea, we, we can't go out. Uh, John and Jan and I like to go to uh, this small uh, private uh, uh, theater in Harrisburg, um, the Midtown Cinema, if I could give a plug to them great, great folks. And, you know, just couldn't go out. So she came up with this idea of uh, rotating. We pick a movie, you have to introduce the movie, we watch the movie, and then you have to kind of facilitate the discussion. We've been doing it. Gosh, I don't know. What do you think, John? Well over a year, right? Yeah, I mean, we yeah. Yeah, I was look, I was looking over um, the movies that we've done. And yeah, we started in March 2020. And we just kind of kept it going. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, whether we're together or, or apart, you know, we pick a movie per week. And so if we are apart, we pick a time for discussion and then we all separately watch the movie during that week. When you guys say like, we, how many people are involved in this venture and spread out over how, how many miles? Yeah, so it, <laughs> it, 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 it started with my dad, my mom and myself, but eventually my youngest brother joined in and that was when he was in Australia. Since, so he's since come back to the States, but yeah, at a certain point, you know, we had to negotiate a time where we're all awake and able to have a discussion about a movie that, that we all watch. So, and, and it was great because, you know, not only were we quarantined away from the world, you know, being away from your little brother during that time was an, an added stressor. So being able to talk to him about movies was kind of a blessing. Yeah, it, it, it worked out great. We, we, finally decided on Saturday nights for us about 9 30 or 10 o'clock to have a discussion and it was noon for him so we'd have this discussion you know and we'd get ready to go to bed and he says okay I'm going to the gym and you know so it worked out great yeah 
there are a lot of movies that I just sort of checked off my to-do list, like uh, like The Bicycle Thieves or Harakiri, um, you know, which are movies that like maybe my mom would not have picked to watch. But after going, you know, watching them, there was we all ended up enjoying them and, and having a great discussion. For some reason, my brother had us watch The Pusher 3. Oh, yeah. I was... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody gets their intestines put through a meat grinder near the end. Yeah, the, the guy hanging so. hanging from a meat hook. Yeah, not not my wife's kind of movie. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but we did everything from like the first movie I picked was uh One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We did a lot of film noir. Uh I picked this gun for hire. A great one John picked was Mildred Pierce. So some real classics yeah. and some real, I don't know if avant-garde is the right term, but jo- Josh also picked a couple of what was the movie he picked, John, with just the music? Yeah, Koyaanisqatsi. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And so these movie discussions led to talking about two specific films that we're going to be talking about today, right? One of them being The Kane Mutiny and the other being Mr. Roberts, both, both mid-1950s naval adventure films, which are very well known. And I'm so glad that you guys decided to talk about this because I had seen Mr. Roberts maybe in high school and remembered little of it. Mm. And I'd never seen the K-Mutiny before, even though I'm a big Bogart fan. So it was a good opportunity for me as well to you know, check those off the list. And I loved both of them. I had a great time watching them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because I think spinning out of the movie discussion, you know, my dad was hosting this uh, like war and justice symposium or, or being you know involved in it. And so then we got talking about, well, what movies have war and justice as a theme. So not just a war movie, but what movies incorporate the theme of justice and you know what what does justice mean in the context of war? And so these are two movies that, that we talked about. These are two really interesting movies because obviously they both deal with uh, unstable commanders and they deal with having to step up and, and, and question you know the leadership that's going on on these ships. Did, was the impression when they came out, I guess is my question, when they're kind of fresh you know, out there early on was the idea that these were sort of critical of the Navy or? For, for me, not necessarily critical about the Navy as an institution, but more uh, critical of what I would characterize as negative leadership. So how does negative or toxic leadership impact the organization? One of the things about uh, the title commanding officer, you really have absolute authority over your organization. And it's more evident and more uh, striking on a ship um, because you could be away from your strike group is what they call it now, or your task force back in World War II. You could be out of communication um, depending on, you know, the intelligence threat, you know, could be in what's commonly referred to as radio silence, you know, um, or the obvious example is a submarine. So the, the CEO of the unit really is the master. So that comes with a lot of responsibility. So for me, even as a young ensign, you know, watching these movies, I tended to focus on the leadership, even as, even as a young, new, wet behind the ears ensign. So, and then, you know, just like anything, you grow, you mature, you look at different aspects of the characters. So even we watched uh, Mr. Roberts just last week, 
uh, as part of our movie night selection. And, you know, even watching it for the, I don't know, the fourth or fifth time, I still uh, get new insight from watching it again. Yeah. And Mr. Roberts has that great line about how a captain on a ship is pretty much the closest thing to a monarch in modern American society. Exactly. He says yeah. goes and even, even more so in other military branches that yeah. Yeah. the responsibility is on that one's one individual yeah. in those, in those instances. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, my dad was on an aircraft carrier for one tour and that I was just a little kid then, but I distinctly remember the stress of him being not satisfied with his commanding officer and there being really like not much you can do about it. Yeah. You know, even, even as an officer, uh, yeah. so that, that, that was, that was by far the hardest assignment I had in the Navy and maybe digressing a little bit there was a there was a chain of command complication there the the aircraft carrier is part of a battle group and there's a number of ships as part of the battle group and the captain the ceo of the aircraft carrier is a captain uh, always an aviator not a surface line officer but an aviator but the battle group commander was a two-star admiral uh sometimes a one-star admiral just to, about to get promoted to two stars. Um, but he was also on the carrier. And coincidentally, those two officers also had a previous assignment as commanding officer and executive officer. It, you know, and so the, that relationship had carried over to the battle group. So not only was this admiral the battle group commander, but he was also on the carrier with his former executive officer. And even for me as a Lieutenant commander, I could sense the tension. Maybe that's a little bit too far down in the weeds, but um, yeah. So it's, it's a lot of things that make the military function and function properly and efficiently. Yeah, I think the, the main takeaway from these movies is in terms of the commander of a ship is his relationship with the people underneath them, right? I mean. The balance of, you know, being uh, nurturing or tyrannical at any given point. I mean, it seems like, especially when you're talking about Quig, the Bogar character at the beginning of the Cane Mutiny, mm -hmm. not the beginning, but rather takes over the ship about an hour into the movie. He's someone who isn't willing to take responsibility, the leadership responsibility, right? He's constantly making excuses for things that are his yes. leadership errors. Yes. And, yes. and that's when everything just starts below him, just starts to kind of break down. Correct. Yeah. And not, you know, the, the flip side of the coin that the CEO of a unit has the ultimate authority, but also the ultimate responsibility and accountability. And there's there's no getting around that. So um, there have been plenty of COs, uh, commanding officers who have been relieved for the unit has poor morale and that filters up the chain of command and there's an ensuing investigation and the poor morale affects combat readiness and not, not only the Navy, but other services too, that, yeah, the, the, the commanding officer gets relieved. Yeah. It's all about combat effectiveness and combat readiness. That's the ultimate goal for any unit. Well, it's an interesting contrast because at the beginning of the movie, the cane is being, of course, the leader of the cane is this guy DeVries, who is mm -hmm. respected by his, his, uh, the sailors on the ship, even though he has a more lax, you know, sort of approach to <laughs> yeah, right. 
so that the ensign who's coming on, uh, Willie, right, yeah. is almost disgusted by the way he runs the ship because he's kind of let it get completely messed up. But he's someone who obviously commands the respect of the people on the ship. And you get the feeling when, um, when, when Merrick jumps into the water to retrieve the piece of equipment that's become detached, and he, when he comes up and Willie says, well, you must really love your captain if you're willing to risk your life to do this for him. You know, and it's just sort of the kind of you kind of appreciate that, you know, he's got people who will jump up right away and and love and respect him the way that, you know, a leader should be. Uh, just full disclosure here. I did uh, talk to my dad about these movies. I had my dad watch. My dad is a uh, uh, retired uh, army colonel for four after four decades and had oh, leadership wow. positions. Yeah. At a base in Eder Oberstein. And uh, so I thought he would have any anything I say that it has any kind of insight or anything comes from talking with my dad. <laughs> okay. My dad actually told me a story about serving in the Gulf when he was called to the CEC of a battleship, which was coordinating artillery fire in support of another ship. And he was brought in to meet the captain. And while he was there, an unidentified aircraft came into range of the ship. And so they called the general quarters, which means everybody ran to their position, in whatever state of undress they happened to be in. And it turned out to be a UVA, a Marine UVA. So the Marine officer who was with my dad ended up getting chewed out by the captain while he was there. But the point of the story, of course, is forget the mission, defend the ship. You know, that's, that's what it suddenly became about. And he appreciated the efficiency of everyone on board immediately getting to where they're supposed to be. Uh, anyway, so moving into the movie. Uh, John, let me just throw this out. What were, was this your first time seeing it or had uh, you uh, seen the movie before? No, these are uh, movies that I think through my dad I had seen, um, you know, since I was a kid, you know, either on TV or on VHS. Um, you know, I, I do think I owe a lot of my love of movies to my parents and just, you know, see, being able to see the world through movies. Um, I, I guess if I can encapsulate it, you know, um, you know, my dad is a practicing Catholic, but made sure I saw Life of Brian at like nine years old. <laughs> So, so yeah, so I, it, it was just very helpful for me as, as a kid to sort of see the world in different ways. Growing up, I, like a lot of budding cinephiles, I had a love for Humphrey Bogart. You know, he's somebody who immediately appealed to me. And, you know, for so many people, I think he's always going to be like Sam Spade or, you know, Rick from Casablanca. But I was able to, to sort of like, you know, in, ingest this broken man performance of his a role that he also did really well in treasure sierra madre like he has such depth and range as an actor that sometimes we don't remember we just remember the movie star bogart um and and this is a movie that really shows just how spectacular and devastating he he could be as a screen performer mr roberts it's not a movie that i've seen as much but the i remember just being a little kid and the palm tree thing being so evocative uh, kind of a, a symbol and, and a demonstration of protest. So it was great to return to these movies and kind of very seriously study them um, as, as an adult. So in Cane Mutiny, we have this, this through the perspective of this guy, Willie, right, who comes onto the ship, decides that he wants to be on this minesweeper uh, rather than go into what they call the real Navy at the time. Which I'm, I'm guessing it's just a, a phrase meaning in combat, right? The people who are actually fighting the war at that time. Well, um... You don't get to pick necessarily, you get orders. We have a thing called the dream sheet. So you can prioritize what you want to do, where you want to go out. You want to go East Coast, West Coast. 
um, that kind of thing. Uh, you want a destroyer or a cruiser or a carrier, so you can fill that out. But the bottom line is the needs of the Navy. So wherever the Navy needs you, that's where you go. So even though Willie had family connections, um, he got sent to this kind of old, run-down, beat-up, tired ship, not a frontline combatant surface ship. Yeah. Right. Although he does so, get the moment in the movie where there's some, through some maneuvering by his parents, through his mother, he could move into his executive office or something like that, right? And chooses to stay on the ship to his crew. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that was in the beginning with uh, DeFreeze. Yeah, he's, mm -hmm. they're in the wardroom and DeFreeze gets a message that says the Admiral is requesting Ensign Keith to serve on his staff as a staff officer. So really basically just doing administrative stuff for that, for the Admiral. And mm -hmm. that's when he decides to, to stay. And he doesn't like DeVries. And like I said, you know, there's obviously the fact that he's kind of has a laid back sort of approach to uh, command, but also he seems to resent him for writing him up for what is a serious mistake. I mean, right. He gets this dispatch and immediately pockets it and forgets about it. I mean, this is something that could end your career. Am I right in saying that? I mean, that seems like a huge, huge error on his part. Yes, yes. That that was a, yes, a very huge mistake on his part. And, um, you know, he, Ensign Keith, is trying to make excuses and defend himself. And that's, he's digging himself a deeper hole. Yeah, yes, sir. I screwed up. Uh, I'll take full responsibility for that and it won't happen again. And that should have been the end of the conversation, not trying to backpedal and blame somebody else. And, oh, I was distracted or the mind sweeping gear was, you know, uh, in, in jeopardy and all that. No, no, too bad. So sad. He screwed up. Yeah. His, his number one defense is, well, everything else is messed up on the ship. So yeah. why are you angry at me? Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's very telling thing for him to say, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And even on a you know a rundown minesweeper, you still have your duty and you still have the things that you need to be in charge of, especially if you're an officer. Yeah, especially during war. I right. mean that that compounds the error. So, but like I said before, the commanding officer is ultimately responsible and accountable for the ship. It is a peculiar situation on the cane because you know you had one of the officers openly deriding the command, the ship, and the mission constantly. Uh, the uh, Fred McMurray character, Kiefer, yeah. and, and yeah. another great scumbag performance from Fred <laughs> McMurray. Right. He's so great. Uh, and nobody's in uniform. The ship is just filthy. It, it's a mess. Um, so there's all sorts of military code violations. So in a sense, Keith is right to be sort of bewildered by like you know this isn't the navy but then he's also somebody who cannot perform under pressure and so i think you know kane mutiny is a film that plays it both ways throughout like it's you know quig is he collapses under pressure he exhibits cowardice um he blames other people for his failures but also all of his junior officers, instead of trying to save the ship, save the mission, they chose to conspire and keep secrets from him, plan on usurping his authority at the first possible opportunity. Um, right. So, and it's also a movie where there's no real villain except for Kiefer. I think it's an interesting movie, especially for, you know, a bright 
1950s Technicolor film that has a lot of moral dilemmas. And that's why I think it's worth revisiting. Well, before we get off of DeVries, uh, just real sure. quick, I want to yeah. ask uh, your thoughts on his decision, number one, to kind of just slap Willie on the wrist for his error, you know, and kind of let it go rather than making a bigger deal out of it. And also, mm-hmm. how you think that a commander like that, how effective you think he would be in a more pressurized sort of situation, the kinds that we see Quigan later on? Do you think that he would be effective in those situations? Yeah, let me answer that question. And then I want to circle back to a couple other things. But uh, the the answer is uh, he would do a good job, I think. And the reason I say that is because the very end of the movie, he's promoted. So he, as the CEO um, of the cane, he's a lieutenant commander. Now he gets promoted commander and he gets command of a, another ship. This time, I guess it's a destroyer. So he gets command of a combatant. So the flag officers, the admirals above him, think enough of him to recommend him for promotion and also selection for another command. In the Navy, those are two separate processes. The, the statutory process is for promotion because all military promotions ultimately get approved by Congress. The administrative uh, screening is for the command. So that's just in-house, that's within the Navy, whether you get screened for a command or not. The flag officers above him think enough of him to, um, like I said, recommend him for promotion and uh, select him for command. So I think he he would have done the right thing in the, in, you know, in the typhoon scenario he would have he would have done the right thing yeah I'm, pr- I'm pretty confident it seems like promotion the desire for promotion is kind of the failing of both Queeg and jimmy cagney's character in mm-hmm. mr roberts right i mean he has the uh the hat with the scrambled eggs on the right that he uh, is yeah. hoping yeah. to get that promotion and Queeg yeah. uh kind of covers his own ass kind of hoping that you know He's going to get promoted off of the ship and, you know, not have to deal with the kind of things that he's dealing with. So let me let me circle back to a couple of things. Uh, the incident with Keith and uh, not bringing the message to the, the skipper's attention. I think there's a privilege component to his character. He's from a very privileged background. He's probably never been under stress or pressure like he's going to face in the Navy. So consequently, the first time he's faced with, you know, not an, maybe not an easy situation for a new ensign, but it wasn't certainly overwhelming. He shirked his responsibility as the assistant communications officer. So, so that's one thing. I think there is a privilege uh, component there. Um, And then the conversation in the wardroom with um, Kiefer and he's, he's uh, slamming or slandering the, the ship. This defrees the defrees character as the captain of the ship. He should have cut that conversation off immediately. That is totally inappropriate. Totally inappropriate. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you brought up that he kind of felt the, the laid back atmosphere of the ship kind of allows him to be lax in his duties and to be able to talk more freely than he should as yeah, an officer. Yeah. yeah. Too, too laissez faire. Right. Yeah. For, for me, for me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, I guess yeah. what you have to kind of remember is you as an individual should always act. Oh, when they say your best is only a maximum of inefficiency. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And then, you know, you should still, you know, make sure that you are being as efficient as you can, no matter what the atmosphere of the ship is or the general kind of uh, way of running things is. No, I agree with that. So then we, he leaves and we get uh, Captain Kui taking over. Uh, what two things I want to ask you combat dress, and then we put the white stuff all over their face. What is that? Yeah. Any um, idea? No. My wife and my wife and I were talking. <laughs> is that about Hollywood? That. Yeah. It's it's, it's fire it's fire retardant. That's Slash, what my dad yeah, thought yeah. it might be. Yeah. Slash cream. Oh yes. Uh, yeah yeah yeah. That's and everybody has to put it on like that. Is that a real thing? I don't know. To be honest huh. with you, I've never seen that before, and I think that's the only movie I've ever seen it in. Okay, so a bunch of Nagzima. Uh, good. I'm glad it's not just like this thing that everyone knows about that I'm no, just totally in the no, dark. No, um, no. But the other thing is the die markers that he ends up dropping when they're escorting the ships into shore. What's yeah. the purpose of the die of dropping the die markers? Yeah. And specifically, the yeah. setup in the movie is Queek flips out yeah, and decides yeah, yeah. to abandon the ships that he's supposed to be escorting into shore. And so it says, drop the die markers, we're getting out of here, yeah. and then turns the ship around, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is, I guess, that they're supposed to follow the die markers as if they wouldn't know which way to go. I, yeah, I couldn't figure out. But obviously, well, it, the, the point of it was to kind of create the whole yellow stain nickname yeah, form yeah, and yeah, everything. Yeah. But I didn't know yeah. if there was a practical reason for the die markers. No, in, in that particular scenario, I think it was inappropriate because the, the tides and currents are of uh, the ocean right there are going to disperse the die marker almost before the amphibious landing craft get there. So it was kind of a vain effort for Queeg to do something uh, and in his mind accomplish his mission and then uh, turn tail and get out of there. Maybe um, a, a real world example might be um, a search and rescue scenario. You know, you have to ditch an aircraft and you're in the ocean with your life raft. Um, it's equipped with a die marker. Hmm. So you would put the die marker in the water uh, that gives an aircraft uh, that's searching for you better visibility of where you might be. Now, again, it's not going to last forever, um, but it, it's um, so you have to use it judiciously. Um, you, you obviously, you wouldn't want to use it at night. Um, but yeah, so all life rafts are equipped with something like that. So that might be a real world example of when a die marker would be used. And, and they don't get too far into it, but they mentioned that Quig is, what, seven or eight years uh, defending uh, convoys in the North Atlantic. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, we're talking mm -hmm. about attack by U-boats. I mean, I can imagine, yeah. I don't think, I don't think PTSD was a common term at the time, but I mean, that's clearly what's going on here, right? I mean, yeah. he's clearly seen some horrible action and mm -hmm. is kind mm -hmm. of at the end of his tether when we meet him. Yes, yes, yeah. And that brings to mind the movie Greyhound that John and I have talked about as a sort of another connection to, to our discussion. But yeah, very, very stressful. The, the merchant Marines in World War II took an absolute beating. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very, very, very stressful. Very stressful. Yeah, I might be, um, you know, stretching my metaphors a little thin, but you know, one of the recurring bits in, in Greyhound is Tom Hanks's character is on his feet for you know 50 straight hours and he, he people keep serving him food and he keeps not eating Queeg sort of obsesses over uh these frozen strawberries in, in the movie for some reason it made me think of um you know the whale ship essex which was the inspiration for moby dick you know uh, this real whale ship that was destroyed by a sperm whale and 
the survivors were, you know, stranded on lifeboats for months. And um, at least one of the survivors died with months worth of food um, stuffed into his attic uh, just because he couldn't get the association of starvation out of his mind. So I'm just wondering if the inability to adjust to like regular, like eat, sleep, like live cycles just affected Queeg in such a way that he was not able to function. And so when somebody like stole food from out from under him, he just became, uh, you know, unhinged. I think if, if you watch Greyhound and think, you know, if, if you were an officer in that situation for months on end, yeah, you could, you know, go into a, a PTSD sort of state and not be able to function normally and, you know, crack under pressure, unfortunately. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I mean, they even mentioned when he's having, when he's calculating how many strawberries were eaten. I did mention, I thought it was, I did notice, I thought it was weird that he mentions he had something like seven portions himself or like a large, a yeah. larger amount of portions than everybody else did, like five or six, something like that. Yeah. But it could be that he, you know, thinks of food not as a delicacy or something that, you know, is a privilege for the sailors, but, you know, something that you need to survive. And maybe he's just stocking up on it. So it's, you know, while it sounds like he took, and, and with the, fact, the fact that he gets up in the middle of the night and wants more, you know, makes him seem greedy or like he's, you know, but it could just be that he has this value, this appreciation of sustenance, like you're, mm-hmm. you're you know, you're saying that, you know, it could be, it could be something to that. The, the strawberry incident is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of them, you know, wanting to, to turn against Queeg as a commander. But that moment where they, you know, uh, the departing officer says, uh it was you know it was the crew it was the guys in the kitchen you know who ate the strawberries and he knows it and he tells them that as a way to be like he's being unreasonable to continue this investigation but i was immediately like you gotta be kidding me the they, the kitchen guys ate the strawberries that is bullshit and queeg is 100 right i'm on his side <laughs> yeah. i was like you guys are quote passing over the most important detail here which was that someone stole the food yeah, but so that should have, but that should have been the end of it, right? That of course that you know, is the further argument of why is he still disciplining everybody else for this? Yeah. But but the point is that gets glossed over so quickly because of his irrational you know yeah, <laughs> approach yes, to yes, this. Yes. But he was right, yeah. and got yeah, stolen on the ship. You know, and he he was right um, when they're doing drills and Quig is seeing people trying to cover up the fact that they're not wearing the helmets, they're not wearing the life jackets. And when he points, when he says, put that officer on or put that sailor on report, you know, because the guys are scrambling to put on their own gear, once Keith, who's probably not where he's supposed to be, uh, finally looks at those sailors, they are now in position and with their gear on. So in a lot of ways, Quig is correct in his, you know, insistence on on discipline. Um, And but because he's established this like tyrannical persona, um, his officer then disinclined to believe him. Yeah. But in, in that case, it's, um, it's a matter of situational awareness and priorities. So people are violating one of the commanding officers standing orders about being in uniform and wearing your proper uh, gear during general quarters. But that's one thing. But the priority is to safely maneuver the ship and get the target on board. Yeah. Worry about that other stuff later. You know, um, 
in aviation, the phrase is aviate, navigate, communicate. So you, the first priority is to fly the plane safely. Okay. Once I can, once I know I got the aircraft under control, okay, where am I? And then do I need to talk to anybody? The same thing applies to surface ships. Seamanship is always the most important thing. You have to safely operate your vessel. And if you can't do that, then you don't belong as, uh, as the commander. So. Yeah, and in, in the book, this is according to the commentary on the movie, but uh, in, in the book, Kuig isn't even on the bridge during that sequence. He's like on the side of the ship. So he's, he's not in position, and that's the only reason he's seeing those officers or those sailors out of uniform. So exactly what you're... Yeah, yeah. But uh, ships, especially combatants, small combatants have, a, well, even carrier has a thing. It's called a bridge wing. Mm -hmm. So they're uh, small spaces on the port and starboard side of the bridge. So technically, you're still on the bridge. You're just outside you're in the okay. in the open so yeah for me that was that where he was was okay it was the actions he was taking or not taking uh that bothered me yeah well that's where the parallels between kane and mr roberts get really interesting because obviously cagney and mr roberts goes off the hinges when he sees you know shirtless sailors even though mm. it's unreasonable to ask them to work in that kind of heat you know without yeah. uh, making yeah. themselves comfortable but this kind of demand for spit and polish you know sort of uh, by the book navy guidelines mm -hmm. as opposed to running an efficient ship i think is sort of what the distinction that these two commanders aren't making enough of like you said i mean obviously saying leave it you know we're going to be late getting back we're going to be the last ship in so just uh leave, you know leave our toe out is mm -hmm. is a crazy thing to say <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah 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 you're you're completely uh losing your command at that point right right responsibility is completely lost but how much do you think in the k mutiny is it a, uh the fault of the the officers that things escalate to the point that they do i mean how much should officers be stepping up and putting people on report or listening to what the captain's asking them to do do you think that they could have done anything to have prevented things getting as bad as they did. Yeah, I think that's the crux of the issue with, with this story. After the Yellowstone incident, he has a meeting in the wardroom with the officers and starts talking about a ship as a family and we have to operate as a family. And I'm still kind of debating to myself, is he asking for help? Is he asking for help from the officers or is he asking for forgiveness? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. See, I always interpret it as, is he circling the wagons, kind of trying to get everyone on his side to make sure they're going to back up his story, you know, so he doesn't mm -hmm. get into trouble. Well, that's, I think that's a subtext, but I think the, the over mentally, you know, in his state, like I said, he's either asking for help or asking for forgiveness, but let's take the former. If we make the assumption that he's asking for help, I think at this point in his career and his life, he's too far gone. So no matter if it's the typhoon or some incident later, he's he's going to lose it. So I think at this point in in the storyline, he's I don't want to say beyond redemption, but he's beyond he's beyond any help um, Van Johnson or the other officers can can give him. He, he's gonna he's gonna crack. So let's ask the big question for the movie or the book. 
obviously the one that they this artwork wants you to ask yourself was van johnson right to relieve him of command at that moment during the typhoon uh i would say yes yes and in, in, in my view he in my view as a former naval officer he did the right thing and would you, is that more because he disagreed with his decision or because Queek kind of clams up and just stops giving orders at one point. I mean, he just seems to completely freeze in the middle of this situation. Yeah, he's so he's so focused on the fleet orders that the task force is heading 180. He's uh, jeopardizing the safety of his vessel. And there's no greater error uh, for a sailor at sea than to jeopardize and hazard your vessel. That's the mortal sin for any sailor is to hazard your vessel. So yeah, so he's 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 freezing up. So yeah, so Van Johnson keeps his head, keeps his cool, and based on everything else that's happened previously in the, in the story, he he makes for me he makes the right decision. And in my view, he saves the ship. If you do that, I mean, you have to. And this gets back to Navy regs. You have to be prepared to justify your actions, and that obviously comes out in the court martial. But yeah, you yeah. Whether you're right or wrong, there's going to be an investigation and a very thorough investigation. You have to be prepared to justify your actions. I think uh, Van Johnson is sort of the secret weapon of this movie um, because obviously Bogart gives a home run performance. Um, Fred McMurray has all these great lines and gets to be a scumbag, but there's just such dignity Van Johnson has right up to the end during the trial when there's just this wonderful close-up of him just pained uh, watching Queek sort of crack in the court-martial. Um, and, and I think, you know, if Van Johnson wasn't as subtle in, in his performance and in the sort of reluctant way he takes command, it, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And I, I really, I agree with you, John, 100%. And the other piece of his testimony that I like is when he's getting cross-examined by the prosecution, his answers are so honest mm -hmm. and direct and straightforward. You really empathize with him as a character. I mean, the, the guy's asking him, E.G. Marshall is asking him, well, uh, what books have you read? And well, I don't remember. Uh, what were your grades in school? Well, yeah, below average. And what's the difference between paranoia and paranoid? Well, I don't know. I mean, he's, He's just very honest. Yeah, he's great in the movie. And yeah. it was funny because knowing just sort of, you know, where the movie was going, I was really not looking forward to the court sequences because I was having such a good time on the ship and I was enjoying <laughs> that part, portion of the movie. And then Joe, uh, Jose Ferrer walks in and is like, I'm taking over the movie now. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, whoa, okay, I'm in. I'm in 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. As, as Jose Ferrer should mention, as Barney Greenwald. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My father mentioned he's wearing the uh, the avi the aviator uniform, right? The Navy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're called aviation greens. Yeah, they're they were a World War II uniform. They then they quickly went away. They came back. I don't know if it was in the 80s. I can't remember. They came back briefly and then the Navy got rid of them again. But I think it's a pretty cool uniform. It's nice. Yeah. It was good. Isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's funny that he ends up being the lawyer. I guess the idea is that so many people have passed on this case that it goes to an, an aviation officer who normally wouldn't be involved. And I guess because he'd been injured, he has the, hand, the thing yeah, in his hand. Yeah, um, he has nothing else to do. <laughs> now, John, did you read the book? Either, John? No, I don't. No, I have not. No, no, neither did I. And maybe in hindsight, I probably I'm kind of kicking myself. I probably should. 
but, a super long book. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, his books tend to be long. But I think the way they're trying to portray his character is that in passing, he says, I'm an attorney or I went to law school or something, but he's an aviator. So I think the way they're playing this is that he's an aviator. He gets injured either in combat or some way, and he's grounded temporarily because of his injuries. He he can't fly. He's in a non-flying status and gets temporarily assigned to the office of the JAG. The Navy is using his skills as a lawyer while he's grounded and can't fly. So he takes this case. And I think that's, without explicitly explaining it to the audience, I think that's what's going on. But speaking of, of, you know, the author, Herman Woke, um, one of the sort of metatextual things I find fascinating is that the only real villain of the movie is the author who's using his time as a Navy to write a novel. And it's written by a guy who wrote a novel while serving on a ship, much yeah. like the game. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, there is a lot, there's a strange sort of self-hatred, you know, in this very work, you know, and apparently because this uh, movie initially did not have the support of the Navy uh, yeah. and that gained, uh, Herman Wolk was, a lot of contradictory feelings about that he felt very broken up that the navy was not behind this movie um and then of course eventually the, the navy came around but I, I just find that aspect of it you know really interesting well and not not surprising the navy wouldn't oh, support yeah. it yeah yeah <laughs> certainly yeah it's not top gun so you know um yeah <laughs> and, and i guess i was reading uh just sort of a synopsis of the book i guess uh there's a whole kind of third act to the book that's not you know delved into in the movie where they actually end up reopening the case and overturning it uh, after the fact, you know, a little while later. And the kind of consequence of that is that uh, Van Johnson's character wanted to go into a naval career, be part of the real Navy, and he gets sent to some backwater job somewhere where he doesn't get to see combat. And the Willie character gets a letter of reprimand, on, like on the books, like official record. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so they, even though obviously neither is put to death or uh stripped of their rank or anything that they both there are consequences in the book later on for the for the, uh, the mutiny oh i didn't know that yeah oh wow hmm. so, oh, interesting it's funny john you mentioned that uh you know how obviously the navy had some problems with this novel and adapting it into a movie and they had to make certain concessions you know make quick like a little more obviously battle damaged and not just like out of a bad person or a you know mm-hmm. uh someone who should never have been put in command in the first place I have to wonder because it was made so close to Mr. Roberts, which is such a subversive film in a lot of ways, but they, like K-Mutiny, there are at least two dedications to the Navy and saying, yeah. thank you so much for your help. Thank you for you know letting this movie happen. And we, we love America. We love the Navy and everything, but it's goofy comedy, obviously, kind mm-hmm. of taking the whole situation of bad a bad commander and you know a an officer in distress and the whole kind of fault. Uh, breaking down of leadership on this uh, vessel takes it a lot more lightly, obviously, than K-Muni does. Yeah, and I, I have to think that the presence of John Ford as director um, helped Mr. Roberts, whereas both Stanley Kramer, who was, you know, a noted issues director and sort of this, like, Hollywood liberal, um, who, and also Edward Dimitrik, who was part of the Hollywood 10 in you know, five years earlier, I think that it would give 
the Navy pause and anything that production team might make about the military. Yeah, Dimitri was the Judas of the ten, right? He was the one yeah, who yeah, turned around yeah, he, and started informing yeah. everybody, named everybody. Yeah, so, so so that's another very interesting metatextual thing because um, I think the only early Dimitri movie I've seen is Crossfire, which is a great film noir about anti-Semitism, um, and it's a stark contrast stylistically. You know, it, you know, it's very typical noir, like you know, Dark Shadows tilted angles whereas the, this one is very two shot close up two shot technicolor you know 50 studio picture and so all that stuff i think makes the movie just really fascinating what are your thoughts on uh, mr um i'm gonna call him, i'm gonna call him mr rogers at some point i know <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on mr roberts uh, uh tom compared to came you just they're different movies i mean the the focus again like i said as we started the conversation for me the focus is on leadership but stylistically, they're, they're just different ways of, of approaching the issue. Yeah, you could probably make some comparisons like Quig and uh, you know Humphrey Bogart and, and Cagney are both obsessed with kind of minutiae things. I mean, yeah, uniforms are important, but I mentioned about the, the importance of the chain of command. Ships and squadrons, uh, submarines, they have chiefs, you know, chief petty officers. So and the, they're, it's, collectively, they're called the chief's mess. And at the head of the chief's mess is the command master chief. So hunt for red October, the Dallas has the chief of the boat. So that's the command master chief, junior enlisted folks out of uniform. That shouldn't be the skipper fixing those problems. That's the chiefs. So if I'm the skipper, I get the master chief in the office. We have a little discussion say, master chief, come on. Let's let's fix this. The crew looks like shit. We not we you know it's affecting good order and discipline, safety. So let let's fix this. And that's the real world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a really sweet moment in Mister Roberts where uh, the sailors are going out on liberty, and one of the youngest sailors comes up to Ward Bond, who's the chief, and says, yeah. "Can you can you tie this for me? I forgot how." Yeah, that's, so, yeah. Like he's his right. dad. So I yeah. guess that speaks to the state of the ship and one thing, but it also yeah. speaks to the relationship of the chief to his sailor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and again, you know, Cagney's running the crew into the ground. There is zero morale, and and he got his order of the palm or whatever it was, the palm tree, because he brutalized, I don't say brutalized, it's not uh, Captain Bly, but he, um, you know, he ran the crew into the ground for his own, because he wants to make commander, he's for his own uh, self-aggrandizement. That's poor leadership, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. We should just yeah. mention in terms of plot, unlike uh -huh. K-Mutiny, the reluctant, the cargo ship that's depicted in this movie, mm -hmm. they called the Bucket. But the Bucket, yeah. is stationed at a backwater areas of the Pacific Ocean in mm -hmm. the waiting days of the war. So it's seeing no action whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's basically right. just floating around an island. The sailors are peeking in at the nurses, you know, on the mm -hmm. island across, across the way. And Mr. Roberts, played by Henry Fonda, wants in on the action. He wants to get somewhere where he can actually be involved in the combat. And he's kind of stuck more or less babysitting this crew, right? Uh, this crew of swabbies who are, you know, basically all Lee Marvins from K-Mutiny. You know, they're just these guys who would just want to not be hassled and just like kind of do the bare minimum that's required of them. So that's obviously a big difference. And the, But the the Cagney running it, the ship as hard as he is, is just sort of immediately negated by the fact that he doesn't even know he has an ensign on the ship for what? Yeah, yeah. Two yeah. years? <laughs> yeah, 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 just yeah, hide yeah. from him? <laughs> Jack Lemon's ensign Pulver is just kind of 
not around. It kind of yeah, doesn't that, realize yeah, he's on the yeah. ship. That that's completely unrealistic, but it's it, it adds <laughs> it adds to the storyline. Uh, Captain should know who his officers are. Obviously, yeah. when when you when you check in to a unit, you have a check in. It's it's that's what it's called. It's called a check in meeting with the CO. Cagney is a little more cartoonish, uh, but I I really like the contrast in acting styles that you see in Mr. Roberts. So you know, you know, Cagney is just so over the top and so demonstrative in everything he, he does, because I think his character is so insecure. But then you have, you know, Fonda and William Powell uh, who are so interior and so thoughtful and so, you know, deliberate in the way they speak and behave uh, that you, you're just so comfortable around, you know, William Powell and, and Roberts, and you just sort of want to hang out with them. They seem like guys that you can trust. And Cagney is just somebody you want to spend the least amount of time possible with. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that Mr. Roberts is the buffer uh, between the crew and the captain. Yeah, he's, I don't, you use the term babysitting, but he's really kind of holding the crew together. So mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then his, the person he leans on is, is William Powell. So, because he certainly can't. He's getting no help from his roommate. So um, my, my father brought up, was it, is it odd for a ship like that to have a doctor? Yes. Good point. I have thought of that. You know, even when I watched the movie a long time ago, yeah, a ship that small would not have a doctor. And interestingly on in the Kane mutiny, there is no medical personnel in the story to help evaluate the state of the captain's fitness. But yeah, the the, um, the bucket, the reluctant would have a what's called an independent duty corpsman. They go through the regular corpsman training, but then they get additional training in order to be out there on their own uh, with no doctor around. You know, f- for me, leadership is about trust and respect. You have to tr- trust your crew, and you have to respect them um, in order for them to do their job. You can't do everybody's job for them, the more you berate them and intimidate them, the less effective they're going to be. So both of these characters really um, try to intimidate their crew, autocratic and authoritative leadership style in order to get them to do their jobs. Ultimately, it's a house of cards. Cagney's a little bit more cartoonish or, or yeah, yes, more cartoonish than than Queek than than Bogart. It just doesn't work. Which is funny because Cagney did manage to kill Bogart at least two or three times in movies, so he's clearly <laughs> the manlier of the, the two. Cagney's character seems like he should he would be one hundred percent ineffective in a combat situation. Yes, I yes, mean, yeah. seems like he would have he, his arrogance reaches levels of the officers, the French officers in uh, Passive Glory, where he seems you know, oh, like he just kind of yeah. wants to relegate things out to everyone else and. Is only looking out for his own comfort and promotion. You know, we talked about a little bit of privilege for Ensign Keith uh, in the K-Mutiny. In this case, there's some class issues going on here where Cagney is very, very resentful of his time as a steward on what I guess was a, some kind of cruise ship or something. You know, his, his earlier days as a youngster serving on ships and then his time, you know, he transferred from the Merchant Marine to, to the Navy, um, which happened, which happened because the Navy needed experienced sailors. I mean, between the interwar years, between World War I and World War II, the Navy was 
pretty meager. So the, the Navy really didn't need experienced uh, officers. But yeah, but there's some clear class resentment going on, you know, where he has an arg- one of the arguments with Roberts about, uh, oh, you college boys really talk, trying to talk down to him. So yeah, pretty evident for me that uh, um, he's very resentful. He's got some deep-seated issues there. So. Yeah, yeah. And then kind of the blackmailing type deal that he makes with Roberts, you know, where he says, you know, you're going to be do what I say and, you know, carry, carry out my orders, no matter what you Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, give him permission finally to, to have his transfer, you know, no commander, no respectable commander would ever try. Right. That stuff is contrasting nicely with the class conflict in, in Kane mutiny where, you know, they're questioning Van Johnson's intelligence, you know, these lawyers. And, and one thing that doesn't make it to the movie that is from the book is that the Greenwald character is more explicitly Jewish. The defense really hammers home the sort of derisive class warfare a- aspect to mm-hmm. on, on his character as well but that mm-hmm. that that didn't make it to the movie and um during our movie night discussion we talked about some self-serving things going on in mr roberts uh which which was a which was a really good discussion john you know mr roberts wants to get out of there he you know, he keeps writing these letters for transfer. So that's, he's looking out for number one. He doesn't realize until it's too late how much the crew really depends upon him. Yeah, he says to William Powell, like, no crew ever needed an officer, which is patently ridiculous from the previous, you know, hour and 45 minutes of, of what we've seen. And then William Powell has to be like, no, 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 here's what happened. And then you know, Roberts is sort of like, it sort of clicks in his head and he says, no, I, I love these men. And I think he has, I, I think he's just clinically depressed, to, to be honest, that he, he, he's not able to recognize the emotions he's feeling. He's not able to recognize the emotions the, the crew has. He's not able to recognize the, the mutually, um, you know, beneficial relationship he has with these men. And that's part of the tragedy of him, you know, being sent off to okinawa by his own efforts yeah i think it uh in an ideal world roberts would be under de Vries, right back in Cape yeah. mutiny uh, and they would yeah. send Kiefer over to be with james cagney <laughs> oh, that's the uh, that, that's the yeah, officer yeah. he deserves yeah, yeah that's right that's right that'd be good yeah <laughs> yeah definitely agree that he was the fact that he's kind of brought up and just kind of fills fills a a need right fills, fills a hole that they need as opposed to Queek, who obviously has years of experience and is brought onto the cane as somebody who knows what he's doing and can be a commander of these people. Cagney just seems like someone who's just kind of lucked into being where he is and should not have been put in command under any circumstance. Yeah, yeah. Ne- neither one of these officers should have been in command. But again, during World War II, you know, who knows how, you know, how bad the Navy needed experienced sailors, like I said before, and, and uh, you know, Queeg had eight, seven or eight years in the North Atlantic, a lot of at sea time. Um, and Cagney has merchant marine, uh, time in the merchant marine. So yeah, the, the Navy really needed experienced sailors, but in terms of leadership, really bad examples. So yeah, well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, you can see obviously how you know uh, Quig would be moved through 
as a, almost as an oversight, like no one, re, you know, even deep into the court martial, no one realizes exactly what kind of damage he has, what, you know, what his experience has kind of done to him, how he's kind of a broken man. Cagney, though, seems like just complete lack of judgment in putting him in command, like someone who got rushed through the system. He is completely unquestioned and he can torture and, and run these guys ragged and, you know, refuse them uh, liberty as long as he wants and no one's going to step forward to do anything about it. Kane mutiny seems to suggest, you know, in a leadership role, somebody has to take responsibility. Whereas I think Mr. Roberts says in terms of Cagney in a leadership role, if you have no respect for the men, you're supposed to theoretically being guiding, mentoring and protecting should not be a leader at all. Yeah. Yeah. He, it, Cagney's, uh, leadership style is pretty tyrannical and I, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, characterize Bogart as being tyrannical because his paranoia has taken over. So he's just not thinking clearly anymore. Cagney, Cagney. could benefit from being more paranoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think Cagney's thinking clearly. He's just a tyrant. He's so. got an ensign who's actually planning on setting off fireworks yeah, you yeah. Know, under his, <laughs> his chair and things like that. So. He should probably be more suspicious of his officers. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he's he's so checked out that he doesn't realize his ship has been assigned to liberty. Like Mr. Roberts is able to bribe a port officer to get the reluctant assigned to liberty. And, you know, Cagney doesn't even know about it. Yeah. yeah. Like he's he, he has very specific aspects of the ship that he's tyrannical about. But otherwise, he's not there. Yeah, and polishing that's, that hat over and that's over. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's a good point, John, because in the K Mutiny, you see Bogart in a number of operational scenes where the ship is doing something. They're operating. Yeah. They're they're towing targets or they're leading amphibious landing craft to the beach or you know doing doing whatever. But in Mr. Roberts, you never see Cagney doing anything related to the mission of the ship he's either watering his plant he's in his stateroom or he's arguing with mr roberts he's never helping with cargo he's never doing anything operational so that's yeah that's interesting yeah, yeah. I, I do think that's sort of um an aesthetic choice by ford to just sort of get across the monotony the boredom and the the utter pointlessness of existence that the reluctant is it's it's a purgatory in in yeah. the midst of of world war ii and it and you can more understand why roberts would want to get off of uh, of the ship but as you said you know the reasons for wanting to get off the ship become kind of more pointed and you know, make more sense to him as the movie goes along yeah. um tom let me just ask in your personal experience yeah. your time in the military did you see positive and negative leadership uh, models like uh, the ones shown here in these movies? Definitely saw examples of both positive and negative, negative leadership, not to these extremes, but yeah, yes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, I hope not. I hope you never had a mutiny. <laughs> no, no, no. There's, there's never been, never been a mutiny in the U S Navy. So yep. we can, uh, <laughs> as, as we saw in the K mutiny. Yeah. And, and I struggled with that, you know, quite a bit that the negative, uh, leadership, you know, to the point where I was asking myself, should I stay in or should I get out? You know, should I stay in the Navy, you know, and make it a career or should I, you know, just at the end of my assignment, resign my commission and go, go do something else. 
definitely examples of positive and negative leadership in the military as well as in the corporate world. And it's it's tough to deal with. And you got to different people deal with it in their own ways. And you have to find a shipmate who you can talk with, especially if you're on deployment. You know, if I'm on deployment for six months, I can't talk to Jan uh, until I get home. But so there has to be you got to find somebody to kind of commiserate with and get you through those dark days. Yeah, I imagine that's got to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure your dad experienced the same thing. Yeah, my, my dad actually mentioned working at the Pentagon under two different three star admirals. And how one of them, he said, was the kind that people would literally, if they walked into a room and she didn't see them, would turn around and, you know, rush out to the hallway, mm-hmm. uh, had that kind of effect where she just, you know, was completely tyrannical and ran things yeah. so strictly that, you know, people wouldn't want to have to deal with her. And the second one was the exact opposite, where she was very personable, very amiable, you know, mm-hmm. strict, but, you know, at the same time, knew how to deal with people and not let morale totally collapse to a point of inefficiency. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always interesting to think about these roles. Um, I, I uh, you know, we talked about this in our movie night discussion, but I was just very touched by the letter reading scene in Mr. Roberts and sort of his outpouring of emotion, you know, everything that he kind of wanted to say to the crew when he was on, on board, but he really couldn't. Um, and, and it's interesting that it's a very college educated letter uh it's you know it's written by somebody who maybe graduated with english degree but it's it's so you know and and read to these guys who may be graduated in high school but it's just so emotional and you know uh, just so beautifully written and then read by jack lemon you know talking about these things that like the real enemy or one of the enemies in war is you know apathy and monotony and and boredom that it's a slow suicide um, to try and just exist in that way and to me that sort of sentiment is what a lot of like the war films of the 2000s were about like like that's what jarhead's about the boredom and the pointlessness uh, between traumas and how to deal with that and sort of and, and so it was sort of amazing to me that this like five minute scene of just just watching jack lemon read this letter says as much about war as some two-hour movies the ultimate tragedy of roberts as a character is that he's killed in a last desperate act of you know japan in a kamikaze attack you know losing the war like that's you know the that kamikaze attack is not going to change the outcome of the war roberts did not die heroically he died like in the mess hall surely by chance you know so what did he die pointlessly then that you know away from the men who loved him um so it's a really like as sort of light a lot of mr roberts is it really leaves you with a lot of heavy questions about you know the, the nature of heroism and you know the the pointlessness of of this sort of conflict for me there was futility in his death. It was so near the end of the war. Uh, he got what he wanted, you know, a combat unit, but in the end, it, it really was meaningless. So it was un- very unfortunate. But he and also, part of the futility is that he never comes to realize what an impact he had on the crew. And for me, the biggest impact was Jack Lemon. So Jack Lemon turns red's like the on-off switch you know, from off to on, now all of a sudden he wakes up 
and realizes he just wasted the last 14 or 15 months on the ship. He could have done something with his life instead of laying in his rack for 16 hours a day. Mr. Roberts and the captain have, you know, motivated this guy and he's going to maybe turn into a pretty good officer. And um, I do think there is this really sweet scene once the, the sailors realize what Mr. Roberts has done for them you know, over the last several months, they sort of like file back to quarters, each wishing him good night one by one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. So I think yeah. all those guys are going to remember Mr. Roberts for the rest of their lives. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Ken Curtis. I, I like that choice of character. Ken Curtis, you know, he's, he's a Western guy, you know, he's in a yeah. hundred Western movies and here he is as a, <laughs> a sailor, pretty good casting. So. I, well, get back to incidental fun casting choices. Just the uh, Claude Akins and Lee Marvin and K Mutiny as these sort of like irascible youths. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> would not be that way for much longer. No, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, both of those guys. That's right. Um, yeah, when John, you know when Liberty Valens was made, Amanda shot Liberty Valens. Sixty-two. Yeah, okay. That, that, okay, that sounds right. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. Yeah, there's a lot of homages to the steel balls uh, that Captain Quig uses um, oh, in, yeah. in, in other movies. And John, one of the ones uh, that I have thought about before even was Star Trek, the Doomsday Machine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 With the yes. with the uh, the Commodore deck, Commodore Decker kind of flipping the computer chips around in his hands. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know I wanted to bring up Doomsday Machine? I thought, let's not get into Star Trek on this topic here. I'm glad oh, well, you brought hey, it up. Between me and my son, we'll be here all night. I love that episode. That's a really good, uh, yeah. you know, of course, yeah. the early Star Trek really uh, leans on the whole Navy kind of dynamic. Oh, between, yeah, you know, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it takes yeah. a lot from those kind of movies. So that makes sense that yeah. it would directly yeah. and, reference You know, that. it. I did think during K-Mutiny, you know, every time they come to shore it's there's some gorgeous shots of san francisco and i did think no wonder gene roddenberry made starfleet headquarters in san francisco <laughs> oh yeah absolutely yeah another thing uh my wife and i were talking about last night uh, watching uh we well we watched the community last night but it's they don't make it obvious to the audience that to get from point a to point b on a ship takes a long time so all this stuff that takes place of the court martial that takes place in San Francisco, all that stuff could have been done in Hawaii, hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and for a ship to get from the Western Pacific back to California, it's a month. And it does it twice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So a lot's going on on the ship. Yeah. But again, the audience doesn't realize that I, I give you an example uh, one of my assignments was I was on the faculty at the Army War College. So I was a Navy Navy guy on the faculty at the senior Army military college, the Army War College. And every year they had a big student exercise and where the students would play, you know, senior staffs, four star generals and admirals, you know, they're dealing with all kinds of crises all over the world. And one student would say, well, I need a carrier battle group uh, over, you know, off of Japan, or I need a carrier battle group in the Indian Ocean or, you know, something like that. And the Navy students would say, okay, but it's going to be there in 
30 days or 35 days. What do you mean? I need it tomorrow. I need it next week. You know, it's, no, sorry, it doesn't work that way. But uh, yeah, I, I really like these two, these two movies. Uh, again, it's a really a, a great study in leadership. Um, ne- you know, negative leadership, but uh, a, a really good, um, both movies are really, really good. Yeah. So, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and Mr. Mr. Roberts is, is more heart wrenching um, than the K mutiny, but uh, really good acting, good stories, good character development. So I really, you know, I've watched them both a number of times. I really like them. So, yeah. And with yeah. all the comedy involved with Mr. Roberts, it's kind of a shock that it becomes more heart wrenching than Kane, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. pretty serious from the get go, you know, yeah. but uh, becomes yeah. even more of an emotional story. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you. This has been absolutely great. Uh, you know, any final thoughts on what are some other movies to check out? I mean, we've mentioned the episode of Star Trek. What other films that are that interest you when it comes to leadership and not only the, the navy but just any sort of a military wow. situation? Uh, Star Trek Six. Uh. <laughs> I, I yeah, I really think if you're going to have a war and justice symposium, I think that is a really great one to pick because it's it the best a, one. Yeah, it has mm, yes the undiscovered country. Yeah, 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 because you know if you're trying to get into these deep discussions, I think the metaphorical use of science fiction to talk about real world issues is very yeah. useful yeah. um so you it helps ease people into those topics um and i'm just fascinated with the idea of using kirk as the guy to you know extend the albrance to this collapsing klingon empire and you know i'm, mm. I'm fascinated by the the cold war parallels as well but it, it really gets to the heart of like you know what is justice to two warring peoples who have gone at each other's throats and killed each other over decades and decades and it it takes them both to just having the courage to say it's over we're gonna gain nothing by killing each other and the way forward is together and i think that's what star trek can you know communicate beautifully yeah yeah i i agree with john what whenever he talks about star trek I agree with anything he has to say. So, <laughs> yeah, you. from a global, from global perspective down to the individual perspective, um, three movies. Uh, I would say, uh, in terms of um, the the symposium is actually War, Peace, and Justice. Um, so there's a third component there. But so, uh, Paths of Glory, for sure. Breaker Morant. Um, Love another great movie, yeah and and then um run silent run deep is another great leadership movie where two really strong personalities clark gable and burt lancaster are button heads the whole time and clark gable is he's a good commander he's tough but he's fair but he's really tough and burt lancaster doesn't like his style but in the end he comes around and realizes that he Clark Gable had it right. Um, yeah, so those those three movies come right to the top of my head. Yeah, excellent guys. Well, thanks again for doing this. This yeah. has been great. I really yeah. appreciate John you bringing this idea forward. Tom, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on yeah. to the show to talk about these films. And uh, this is terrific. And I love you guys doing the uh, the movie series together and having discussions afterward. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I haven't uh, gotten a chance to watch a movie with my dad you know in a couple years since this whole thing started so just Mm -hmm. asking him to watch these which he 
in you know on par with military efficiency like the next day was like okay i watched him it's the soft you know um it was great just to have a conversation with him about it and kind of really think about these movies and then hear you guys talk about them so yeah, it's been awesome. terrific yeah it was this this was great it was a great experience you know? um, what, what are we doing next week yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>